Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, we are talking with Brian Cuban. He is an author of a new book called The Ambulance Chaser. He's written a memoir called The Addicted Lawyer, talking about his time working in the legal profession while also having drug and alcohol issues, as well as body dysmorphia issues and how all that uh, kind of mixed up together. Um, I made a terrible flaw in this interview. I didn't research my guests properly. Uh, Brian Cuban is Mark Cuban's brother. And if you listen to this interview, you'll hear me put those two and two things together about 20 minutes into the interview um, when he brings up the Dallas Mavericks and all this sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, so that's a very interesting sort of thing. Um, moral of the story, Cameron, Google your guests. Learn about who they are um, before you ask them onto your podcast. So. You know how we do things around here. I'm a one-man show. Sometimes things get weird. If you're not used to getting things around here, well, stick around because things sometimes get weird around here. Anyway, fascinating conversation. Super interesting guy. Was great to chat with him. Um, and yeah, here's the interview with Brian Cuban. It's the Camera Journal Podcast. Let's go. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Today on the Cameron Journal podcast, we have author Brian Cuban on. He is a lawyer turned author. Um, he wrote a book called The Addicted Lawyer, and he has a new one coming out called The Ambulance Chaser, um, which is all sorts of people's affectionate names for lawyers. And so we're going to talk about the law and addiction and books and all sorts of things. It's another one of my fascinating, interesting author interviews where we talk with interesting people who write books. So welcome, Brian, to the Cameron Journal Podcast. How are you? Great, Cameron. Thanks for having me on. You are very welcome. So why don't why don't we start off with you telling us about uh, the latest book that you just released, what it's about, and uh, what inspired you to do it? Sure. It's, it's a, uh, a break from my usual books, which my first two have been memoir-style nonfiction. It is called The Ambulance Chaser. It is a legal thriller. And it is about a law, personal injury lawyer who is, struggles with drug and alcohol issues and who finds himself accused of the murder of a high school classmate uh, who disappeared 30 years ago. Uh, and they find her remains, he's arrested, and he flees and becomes a fugitive to find the one person who can both prove his innocence and save the life of his son who's been abducted. Perfect. That's like, you know, John Grisham meets, like, Taken. <laughs> I like it. I like yeah, it. I heard John, John, John Grisham meets the guy from the, uh, the, the, the Fugitive, Richard Kimball. Yes, yes, exactly. That's an apt comparison, apt, very apt comparison. So uh, when it comes to uh, this kind of fiction thing, what got you to do this and break away from nonfiction? 
Uh, I've always enjoyed writing and uh, you can only tell your stories, your own story so many times. And I wanted to do something different. Uh, my first two books were about my struggles with mental health issues and addiction and eating disorders. And so rather than writing about my character, I decided to create a character. And it was a much different, uh, it was a, there was a huge learning curve. It's one thing to tell your own story. We're all experts in our own, in our own journey, but to create new characters and a storyline and something that's hope people hopefully find interesting was definitely a, uh, a learning process. Yeah, which uh, which was easier for you, the uh, the memoir or the fiction? Memoir for sure. Yeah, Absolutely yeah, memoir. Yeah, the memoir is a, such a unique sort of uh, sort of style. There's a lot of classes on memoir. Like every writing conference has like three workshops on memoir, um, and it's uh, it, I, I find it the reverse. I find it easy to make up stuff. It's writing about myself that I find very hard. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's uh, uh, being 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 in the recovery advocacy field. That writing about myself was not the issue. The issue was doing it well, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I get and I guess with with any book, and I'll certainly find out with the ambulance chaser as I continue to paint on layers of thick skin, uh, in in anticipation. It's I mean they're just they're just it's a different skill set and being vulnerable and being authentic, writing a memoir is certainly uh, something that is not easy for everyone. No, it definitely is not. And, and to that point, you mentioned mental health and recovery and advocacy and all this type of thing. The, um, the struggle with addiction and all that sort of thing um, figures quite prominently in your work. Why don't you uh, walk us through a little bit about your own journey with drug addiction, mental health issues, and, you know, then we'll trade war stories. Sure. Well, I am in long-term recovery from cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, as well as traditional and exercise bulimia. For what for people who don't know what exercise bulimia is, is obsessive-compulsive exercise for the primary offset of, offset of calories, uh, which happens to be my biggest recovery struggle today in my relationship with food and exercise. And all of this uh, wrapped around a lot of childhood trauma, uh, there was a, I was a heavy, I was a heavy child. Uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my household. Uh, I was bullied severely at school. I was actually physically assaulted and, uh, over, you know, kids who thought I would look funny wearing this particular pair of pants. My brother, Mark had given me my older brother. And, uh, the, the first thing that happened was when I went on to college at Penn state, I decided that, uh, my route to self-love and popularity with the other kids being accepted was to become thinner. So I began to restrict my food intake. And this was in 1979, before anyone was talking about eating disorders. And uh, certainly not for men. And then uh, I transitioned into bulimia. And from there, I transitioned into exercise bulimia. So I was binging and purging while also running 10 and 20 miles a day. Uh, and then as, as I transitioned, as I uh, went through Penn State, I turned to drinking so I didn't have to feel my feelings and uh, I didn't have to feel seeing this ugly monster in the mirror that I thought I was. And that transition, and then I added cocaine to my resume. Um, my first of two trips to a psychiatric hospital the summer of 2005 when I became suicidal uh, and uh, was literally uh, saved by a friend who emailed my brothers 
who came into my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand, arrested for DWI, three failed marriages, and uh, lost, my, lost my career as a lawyer. And then finally, I began my recovery in 2007. That's a, that's a journey. Let's let let's unpack that a little bit. Um, so, I have feel you on weight issues. I my father is six seven, <clears throat> um, so I was going to be a big dude no matter what. And it was very difficult growing up in a world that is like not optimized for that at all. And and when it, you have a weight problem, everybody is either making fun of you or giving you free advice that you never asked for. Um, <laughs> And so um, that is, I can definitely see like the pipeline from, you know, from kind of one to one, one to the one, one to the other. Um, what is it about when you come from that type of trauma? What do you think the appeal of drugs is? Uh, I can tell you what the appeal. I of have drugs my is. own ideas on this, so I always ask other people to sure. see how close my theory is to the truth. <laughs> Well, what we have to start with is that I don't consider myself an expert in anything but my own story. So I can tell you that the appeal for me was is that uh, all I ever saw when I looked in the mirror was this this kind of monstrous creature was who wasn't worthy of love. And when I drank, I didn't have to feel that. When I did cocaine, I I finally loved myself when I looked in the mirror. So it was all about loving myself in very unhealthy ways. When I binged and purged, it gave me a feeling that uh, the next day everything was going to be okay. The next day, girls would like me. The next day, I'd get my first kiss and all these types of things that young teens want and, and associate with love and acceptance. And I, I was very classic. I'm the middle of three boys, and I was classic middle child syndrome. I was very uh, shy. I was withdrawn. And I really wore anything negative said to me and internalized it and wore it like a skin tight suit. And so uh, it kind of set up the perfect storm for me to uh, kind of cycle through all of these destructive things to find something that was so elusive to me and that was self-love. What is the, <clears throat> what what is that, like, what is that, that journey coming out of addiction and all this type of thing everybody talks about the whole self-love thing which is something I've always it's something I've always struggled with but I've also kind of thought was rather silly and you know just kind of like seems like an odd thing what's what's that what's like the shape of that what was the shape of that journey for you uh do you in recovery or or in addiction um, in recovery, you know, kind of after it was all over, you got to this place of, you know, more self-love sure. and all this type of thing. I got like, it. Like, well, I'm yeah, still trying to get to that place. And, yeah. and, and, and what it, to, to be more specific, when I talk about self-love, it's really peeling back the layers of my life, which I do in therapy, which I, I've been through many different types of therapy, uh, to peel back the layers of my life to a, a little boy who never felt loved and kind of heal that little boy. So that little boy could love himself. And that may sound very esoteric, but it's uh, been very effective for me in therapy. Because uh, you really have to understand the journey. And, and there, was, uh, uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my house. Uh, my mother, uh, I used to come home from middle school, and this is in the 70s. I'm a boomer. 
and uh, I used to eat Chef Boyardee ravioli out of a can <laughs> and uh, come home from school. My mother would come home from selling real estate and she would say, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these, my mother's mother said these things to my mom and I'm, my great grandmother probably said these things to my grandmother. Fat shaming in families can be generational in nature. And I come from a uh, Eastern European Jewish family, you know, from the old country, very uh, intense relationship around food. And my mother had her own mental health issues and had a very, very difficult relationship with her bipolar mother, very mentally and verbally abusive. Uh, and so the stuff kind of runs downhill. And this is the 70s where, you know, a woman talking about being, you know, being depressed or having any kind of mental health issues, you could be put in an asylum. And so no one talked about these things. And obviously those kind of things would make a teen depressed and think your mother didn't love you. And she loved me dearly, but was struggling herself. And uh, then I was also being bullied at school. So I began to eat more and more and I became a bigger Brian. I became a borderline obese Brian. And the bullying really was difficult in school. And uh, all of this culminated, Cameron, it, and when we talk about snapshots of trauma in our lives, and when I first realized, started not loving myself, my brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants, if you can imagine that. This was the 70s. It was Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta, <laughs> Mark yes. Talk Disco. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but my brother, I love my brother. We're very close. I have a, a younger brother as well. And... Uh, and I wore these pants to school, but they fit my older brother okay. For me, you know, I mean, I had to jump up and down, you know, spray the water bottle, right? But my butt looked like 15 cats back there trying to get out. But I didn't <laughs> care because my brother, I loved, uh, because these were a symbol of my brother's love for me and how close we were. And the kids made fun of me, as you might imagine, you know, calling me a fat pig and fatso and all the things, you know, all the cruel ways kids bullied when in a time when bullying was brick and mortar right going viral yeah. going viral in boomer days meant 15 kids in the lunchroom knew about something <laughs> yeah i mean that's i mean it's just i mean it is here's my problem with the self-love narrative um is we act like it's something we have to do within ourselves and of ourselves and all this type of thing. But the reality is we as humans are programmed to crave and want group validation and validation sure. of our family and our clan and our tribe and all this type of thing. And this has been programmed for this way for a hundred thousand years. So I, I don't see how you can enjoy one without the other. Well, like if you're going to like and appreciate yourself to some degree, you have to have somebody, some people somewhere who appreciate you for you. Absolutely. We all seek out acceptance, peer group acceptance. But we also have to differentiate between normative discontent in our body, right? Which is, you know, everyone looks in the mirror at one time or another and says that sucks, in, at least in the industrialized world, right? And the, uh, so, but that, that, that there is a difference between that and when we engage in unhealthy behaviors and we have a very, we have an unhealthy body image that tips over into dysfunctional and destructive behavior. And we seek out acceptance and uh, we seek out acceptance in very intense and maybe destructive ways. For me, all of this kind of came to a head when I was uh, wearing these pants and walking home from school with these kids who were in my mind, the popular kids, uh, the kids who were going to the football games after school, the prom queens, the prom kings, 
you know, the, my images were the kids I saw every day. There wasn't Instagram. And so my images of popularity and they decided I was just too fat to wear these shiny gold bell bottom disco pants my brother had given me. And they physically attacked me and they ripped them up and to shreds down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my tube socks, my kids tennis shoes, my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt, grew up in Pittsburgh, and threw them out in the street and walked on like they had done the greatest thing over, high-fiving. So Cameron, I went out in the street and I picked up the shreds of these pants and I covered up my tidy whities and I waddled on home and people gawked, no one stopped. And uh, I got home and went down in our basement and I buried the pants and no one was home and I buried the pants shreds at the bottom of the ba this wastebasket uh, thinking that, okay, well, if I just hide them and they'll get thrown away and I'll never think about this again, but that's not how trauma works, is it? Uh, the body remembers, the body keeps the score. And it was, you, we talk about traumatic snapshots in our lives and it was right around then that I started to look in the mirror and only feel that there was only this ugly monster who would never be loved by anyone in the mirror. Now, whether you call that lack of self-love or self-hatred or whatever, but the, the, the bottom line is, is that I was repulsed by what I saw. And that is what yeah. I took into my adult life. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's step forward a few years. So you, you know, by the time you got to college, you started, you know, using substances, all this type of thing, and started this weird sort of like, you know, purging exercising cycle. Um, which I kind of, I kind of understand. I was never, you know, I, I was never one to like purge like that. I just kind of kept eating less and less and less. And I was, you know, a gym rat that went to the gym four days yeah. a week and was powerlifting and all this type of thing. Um, which is funny because now I look back at pictures of me in high school and I'm kind of like, I look fantastic. What was I complaining about? Um, like compared to today, I'm kind of like, I, I, I would get with 18 year old me. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, I, it was just kind of like, what was like what was the what was like the everyday thought process during that time like what was your thinking in all of that process oh man i mean obviously uh it's impossible to remember exa an exact thought process right because memories are just memories of memories yes uh, of course but uh loneliness it was it was i i the, the feeling that i remember thinking back was just intense loneliness and uh, isolation uh that that's that's what i remember and uh the only way I, you know and i and i compensated for that loneliness i mean i was lonely i went to penn state i was lonely on a campus of a hundred thousand people you know with over main campus of fifty thousand people or a hundred thousand people right i felt completely alone so i binged and purged i went out would run out go out for these long runs and uh, I began, uh, and I began going to the state store and buying bottles of tequila, and going into the uh, alleys where the state, Penn State bars were, and drinking the bottle before I would go up to the bars. It was uh, a lot of compensation for intense loneliness, and I can still kind of feel that kind of gut loneliness when I think about those days. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, I, I think you know that it's. I think one of the for most fortunate things one can have in life that I think makes a big difference is like having, you know, that kind of foundation of like a loving and supportive family. And if you don't have that, 
as far as surviving life as we know it, I think that's terribly crippling. It can be. I mean, we have to remember there's a difference between cause and correlation, right? I, I, I've seen kids come out of the most loving families <laughs> ever. And I mean, and they're, you know, and they're dealing with opioid addiction, heroin addiction, they've uh, gone to prison. And uh, so it, it's, it's hard. I mean, environment does play a huge role. Genetic plays a role. Uh, peer, you know, your interaction with your peers play a role. If we can figure all that out, we'd all be great. Uh, that all interacted. <laughs> no, yes, no, for, for certain, for certain. And it just, it just seems like, I know it's like, it's one of those things like, and obviously this is not scientific at all, but in, you know, I have a category on the blog called observations. One of the things I have observed in life is that people with rather traumatic childhood backgrounds tend to have very difficult early adulthood. I have one friend who kind of escaped that. My friend Nick came from an awful like double divorce childhood, all this type of thing. And of all of our like group of friends that I knew, he's the only one that like never had an addiction problem, all this type of thing. Been with the same, you know, woman for like 10 years now, all this type of thing. He met the rest of us on the other hand, no. <laughs> like we were all kind of a mess. So it's just one of those things that's like if I'm looking for like, you know, what do all of these disparate people have in common? That's a factor I look at and say. I think there's something to that. Well, you're so, right about that. Yeah. You're right about that, Cameron, because we know we know scientifically, we know that, that uh, peer-reviewed data shows us that there is a very strong correlation between trauma and addiction, trauma and depression in adulthood, and trauma and, you know, other things going on. And, you know, you can cycle through the DSM-5, right? But uh, we know that there's a strong correlation. That's why there's so many books written on it. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So coming out of college, um, what, like you're, you're a tequila-fueled undergrad. Why did you pick law? That's an interesting question. Uh, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. I had no concept of being a lawyer. I wanted to be a police officer. I was a criminal justice major. That would have worked out well, right, Cameron? I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading, <laughs> out, the, trading out the baby laxative for the blow. <laughs> there was actually a, a, a an interesting scandal in Massachusetts where they had a lab tech who was doing just that. Yeah, well, the French, you know, I mean, the French connection, right? And you know, uh... yeah, yeah. No, she literally was like using the state's drug testing lab equipment to make crack for herself. Like, yeah. and it was a whole, yeah, it was it was a whole. It's on Netflix. Um, if you want to watch it, oh, um. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that would have probably been a bit of a, you know, like we've made a huge cocaine bust and there you are. One, two, three for me, one for the evidence. There you one, go. One, two, three, four, that, five for me, one for the evidence. There's okay. a strong possibility that would have been me. <laughs> uh, but, so, so you gave up on the police officer idea and decided well, on law. What happened was I was, uh, I was, I, I was sitting in the placement office at Penn State, thumbing through police officer jobs. And I was listening, and these, there were these two guys next to me that were talking about taking the LSATs. And I knew them both. We're all in the same major. And uh, they were both from Pittsburgh, like me. And they were talking about going to Pitt Law, the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And I'm um, eavesdropping on their conversation, and the bells start going off in my head. And they weren't the bells of, well, I want to be a lawyer and you know, be Clarence Darrow, emulate Atticus Finch, change the world. They were the bells of, Law school is three years. I can stay in law school. Three, I can stay out of the world three more years 
and I can binge and purge, I can run, I can drink, and I can engage in the behaviors that have allowed me to survive to this day. And it made perfect sense to me. That's why I went to law school. Well, I, I can't say your logic was far off. Like, I mean, it's, you know, no, that, I mean, yeah. It, but you'd be surprised, Cameron, how many, uh, I, I, deal, I talk to a lot of law students as part of, you know, what I do. And uh, yeah. you'd be surprised how many are in there for not for those specific reasons, but for reasons that are not their own. Yeah, I, it was kind of funny. I, I was actually going to go to law school. I, my master's degree is in international relations. I wanted to do international law. And so I was going to, I was going to go to law school. And actually every one of my advisors from my graduate program advised me not to do it. Keep in mind, I was having this conversation in 2011 and the market for lawyers back then was virtually non-existent. And one of the uh, professors said, if you can do literally anything else, you should not go to law school. Um, and I ended up taking, uh, taking their advice. I also didn't do a PhD either. Um, and I started, you know, going out and doing, you know, marketing and I worked in fashion and all this type of thing. So it's, um, it, it's an interesting, I'm not surprised that there are people there for, you know, different reasons. Cause it seems like it's one of those things of you have to, you know, if you're going to go do that, you have to do that. You, you have to do it because either someone's pressuring you to do it or you think that's the only thing you can do. Yeah. And I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't talk to my brothers. I didn't talk to anyone. I said, okay, I'm going to take the LSATs and I'm going to apply. And uh, I think my parents were as surprised as anyone when I told them that I was going to pit law. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, I think they were happy because I, I was, I was home, but, uh, and then, uh, that summer I got, I did get into pit law, even with all the drinking and everything. And that summer, uh, I worked as a store detective at Joseph Horns in downtown Pittsburgh the summer be be between my senior year in college and, uh, starting law school where I, you know, I would, you basically, you hid behind mirrors and watch people shoplift stuff and then, Say surprise! Here I am with a with a pair of handcuffs, and the mirrors were not in changing rooms; they were out out in the main area. <laughs> I didn't want anyone yeah. to think it was a pervy type thing. But uh, yeah, so I did that and uh, went on to law school and walked through the doors of Pitt Law as an alcoholic, as a male struggling with two different eating disorders and beginning to deal with major depressive episodes. Not quite the recipe for law review. <laughs> No, but but then you somehow graduate past the bar and start practicing law. I did graduate. Not I didn't do very well, uh, but I, I did manage to graduate, and I didn't even bother. It's funny. I didn't even bother going to graduation because I was so ashamed. Uh, so I just uh, Labor Day, nineteen eighty six, with maybe fifty or hundred bucks to my name, I got a Greyhound bus and took it to Dallas, Texas, where both my brothers live. Here, here in Dallas. The Labor Day 1986, met my older brother at the at the bus station and uh, moved in with him. And it was kind of like throwing gasoline on a fire because, you know, I mean, he and my younger brother, they're in their 20s and they're out drinking and dating. They didn't do drugs, but uh, I fit right in, right? And my drinking escalated. And then the summer, Cameron, the summer of 1987, it was in a, a nightclub in, in uh a nightclub that was in a hotel in downtown Dallas in their bathroom, I discovered that one thing that for the first time in my young life, uh, 
allowed me to look in the mirror and not see that monster and not be repulsed. I discovered a little white line that uh, allowed me to see a reflection that I loved, that the girls upstairs loved, that my, my mother loved. She loved me dearly, but struggled with her own issues. And so that was quite a powerful feeling for me when I did that first line of cocaine in that bathroom in 1987. No, I, I, under, I understand that. Coke was always my favorite drug of choice. And I always liked it because I feel like it made me like more outgoing and more popular. And I am yeah. autistic and ADHD. So people always like hated me for the longest time. So it was like, for me, it was like an exciting experience to be like running around with like, you know, people in nightclubs and all this type of thing. And I was working in fashion. I was in a magazine and I had models around me and all this type of thing. And it's like, I was the chubby brown kid who did not fit in. And all of a sudden I'm hanging out in VIP sections of nightclubs, drinking expensive champagne with beautiful women with Russians name, Russian names who barely speak English. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm 24 years old. And I'm like, I'm winning at life for the first yeah. time ever. That, that was fun. me. That was me when my older brother became famous with the Mavericks. You know, all of a sudden I could do those things. And that's yeah. a whole other story. No, I, but, I, mean, uh, I, told, I mean, I told, I told someone like that, that whole business ended awfully and terribly for a whole thing. That's a whole, that's a novel coming soon. Um, but like that, I told them, like, I was 24 years old. To most 24 year olds being in that environment is incredible. That just that put drugs to one side, just that's addicting. And oh, then yeah. on top of that, you add in drugs and how good you're feeling. It's about years afterwards, my friend Jenna, we've been friends for 15 years. She's like, she's like, here's the thing that you forget, Cameron. When you did coke, you became the world's most colossal asshole. And I could always tell when you were high because I never liked you. And I've always liked you since the moment I met you. And, and so I'm like, I'm like, I had, I'm like, thanks for the feedback. I had no clue. Um, and so she was, uh, she, she was very happy when I, ended that part of my life but no i completely get that absolutely it's you know it's yeah, kind of a weird thing how that happens yeah and ben and the downside of that was is yeah it made me it was i was kind of like you i was one of the biggest douchebags on the dallas party scene yeah you know, i was coked up all the time but it also it's hard to be a competent and ethical lawyer uh while you're coked up all the time and uh i failed the bar exam two and a half times uh because of drugs and alcohol before i finally passed it and uh, I wasn't a very ethical lawyer. I, was, I would take any case I could just to fund my drugs and my party habit. And then, 19, and then in uh, 1990, I got arrested for DWI. That didn't stop anything. Uh, that was only a little blip in my mind. And I eventually lost, my, uh, I lost all my clients. I, my brother, Mark, put me to work for him after he had bought the uh, Mavericks. He also had an interest in the American Airlines Center. And they were just building it at the time. And this was, I want to say, they were finishing it up, and maybe this was 2000. And uh, he's, he wanted to kind of pull me up by my bootstraps, so he said, you'll go to work for me. And I was, I was a miserable failure. I was showing up at these meetings with some of the most important people in Dallas, uh, hungover, high on cocaine, and all this, and he had to pull me out of that. And uh, here's where I have a, a privilege, and I acknowledge the privilege I have. Uh, my brother was uh, basically taking care of me because I, I no longer had clients and I would have been living under a bridge. And yes, I, I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge the different privileges I have, you know, the financial, the skin color, all those different things. But I'm alive today talking to you, so I'm glad he did. Okay, this is really embarrassing. You're Mark Cuban's brother. Yes. Oh, that's really embarrassing. <laughs> 
I did not realize that when I booked you for this podcast. I yeah. am so sorry. There's nothing to be sorry about. I mean, it is what it is, right? Everybody, somebody, oh, sibling. If dear you have sibling. listener, I am so. This is this is when Cameron didn't do his homework on his guests. <laughs> if you have si- everyone, so if you have siblings, everyone, somebody's brother or sister. But uh, yes, no, that's true. No, this is this is quite embarrassing. This is quite embarrassing. I'm. I cannot apologize deeply enough on behalf of myself. <laughs> oh, don't I mean? Don't even worry about it. it it's not. It's uh, to me it's just my brother, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, he was just the, you know. The, but when, you know, when we were talking about you know being douchebags on the scene, yeah, when he became famous, and and I really I had no self identity, right? I hated myself, and right. so all of a sudden I found that I could walk into the clubs, people yes. gave me free drugs, I was dating girls half my age, and those relationships were all revolving around drugs, of right? Course, why, yes. why else would a girl half your age date you? Uh, right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, it, it was so. What you're saying kind of you know resonates with me because that I decided that if I couldn't be Brian Cuban, and I don't know who Brian Cuban is, and I hate in the Brian Cuban that I do know, I hate. Right when I look in the mirror, I can be Mark Cuban's brother and get all these free things and enjoy that kind of name, fame, popularity. And I was just a huge douchebag. Yeah, no, I, it was kind of, it never occurred to me that I was just kind of like not a very nice guy. Well, behind, until like years later, I'd already like gone, you know, um, like I'd already gone through recovery and therapy and I'd got, I'd, you know, moved from Denver to Seattle to like get out of that scene in that world, like needed a change of address, all that type of thing. Um, and it was like years later, Jenna was like, you were always such a huge asshole when you were high. And I was kind of like, hmm, didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, it was kind of an, an interesting, an interesting sort of sort sort of thing. So, it yeah, that definitely um, definitely is is a bit is is you know understandable. But so so kind of what you know, so to, so fast forward to two thousand five. Fifteen years go by. You're you know working in the basketball, all this type of thing, and then eventually rock bottom comes. Well, rock, but that wasn't rock bottom, but it was a it was a low bottom and. The summer of 2005, I had really gotten to the point because my entire life was cocaining through the day and Xanaxing, uh, or cocaining through the night and Xanaxing through the day, right? It becomes a vicious cycle and it becomes very hard again to practice law or do anything. Uh, I mean, I had done cocaine in the state courthouse, the federal courthouse. I'd shut up to hearings on cocaine. And uh, I mean, it was just this huge... Uh, it was just awful. And uh, there's a saying, cocaine's fun till it's not. And it it, it was definitely not. <laughs> and I lost all hope uh, that I was ever going to love, my, love myself, look in the mirror and see somebody who was worthy of it. And I decided I would be doing my family a favor by ending my life by suicide. And so uh, I got, I, I obtained a weapon and I emailed a friend, uh, uh, some that I was going to do something with it. And he uh, contacted my two brothers and my younger brother came into my house and I was zonked out on Xanax and cocaine and uh, had been drinking. And the 45 was on my nightstand. Uh, my uh, Mark flew in from LA and they uh, cleaned it, everything up, took the weapon and drove me in my first of two trips uh, down to a local psychiatric hospital, kicking and screaming. Uh, they're trying to save my life. And all I want them to do is leave me alone in my bedroom and leave me to the people who love me, 
uh, at least until the cocaine is gone, right? Uh, just the people that I did drugs with or to just finally put myself out of my misery. And of course, they loved me dearly and weren't having any of that. And they tried to put a psychiatric hold on me, but being a lawyer, I knew what to say. In Texas, you have to be a danger to yourself or, or to others. And uh, they couldn't make that happen. So they drove me back home, did what I call the Cuban rehab. They took my car keys, said, uh, stay in my house, say, stay in your house for two weeks. Don't party, don't do anything and everything will be okay. And that's not how addiction works, is it? And I remember thinking, no problem, my drug dealer delivers. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I'm like, that just means that you're going to get, all, you can get the party, the drugs, and the everything, you just come to you. It's like, if you exactly. can't export, you import. Like, <laughs> exactly. But it was also clear, to, which is what I did, and I was so angry that they were trying to tell me what to do, that the moment they left my house, I got a cab, uh, the pre-Uber days, got a cab, and... Uh, went down to the car dealership and got a new set of car keys. And, but uh, the other thing that was clear to me is now it is in their face that I have these issues. I'm not ready to change yet. And so I distanced from my family and uh, my father who knew nothing about any of this stuff, my brothers and uh, just kind of secluded myself into the Dallas night scene again with the people who uh, cared about my drugs and my ability to provide them and cared about the party, cared about, the bottle service and the tables, things I'm sure you understand. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. And so uh, this went on through uh, the summer of 2000. This, in the January of 2006, I was out at one of my uh, week-long birthday parties uh, that started when the cocaine began and then ended when the cocaine it was gone. And uh, about halfway through it, I was in this nightclub, and I met this woman. Her name is Amanda. And I guess I was able to put on one of the last masks I had to, you know, to this, this, this uh, deceitful mask that I'm this respectable lawyer, right? And we yeah. started dating and she moved in with me. And then uh, I remember when she moved in with me, one of my buddies said, Brian, you do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. How's that going to work? And I said, well, I'm going to stop. This is going to cause me to stop. I, 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 I like her. I think I may love her, you know, and, uh, it's, and I'm, so this is it. And so now I'm starting to think about it, right? I'm starting, I'm, I'm in the stages of change now, and I'm understanding that this needs to end. So come Easter week, but it didn't end. Uh, I was doing it under her, right under her nose, you know, and, and hiding it from her. So come uh, Easter weekend, 2007, uh, she went to Houston to visit family. I went out with my buddies, and it was a it was a Friday. And the next thing I know, it's Sunday afternoon. I'm in bed. There's cocaine and Xanax on my nightstand. There's bottles of uh, wine, empty bottles of wine, on on the in the bedroom. <laughs> and she's looking down at me like, "What the hell?" Probably trying to figure it out. Trying to probably figure out if she walked in the right house. Right. You know? We have like, it's like the key works, but am I at the right address? Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and I'm trying to get my bearings. I don't understand. I don't understand that two days of almost two days have passed. Oh yeah. And I'd had a blackout and, uh, and I'm now I'm trying to think of, I'm thinking, Oh shit. And I'm trying to think of a lie to explain this law and order episode orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. <laughs> and, uh, 
all I could think of, Cameron, was kind of a metaphorical running home to mama. I said, take me back to the, and I named the psychiatric hospital in Dallas. And she looked at me and said, you've been to a psychiatric hospital? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some things you don't know about me. So she drives me down to the psychiatric hospital. So I'm standing in the parking lot for the second time in, uh, what, two years, uh, waiting for intake. And she's crying. And I'm thinking she's, gonna, she's gone. Well, I mean, I'd leave. But she didn't. You know what, Cameron? She stood by me. And we dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. And we've been now been married going on five years. So uh, not all relationships will survive these kind of things. But ours did, one, because she's a saint, and two, because, I mean, I had to do the recovery work for me, right? Because people do leave, trauma happens, people die in your life. And so, uh, yeah, so... It, so no, we, I, yeah. I was having this very... Con it's funny you should say that, because I was having this conversation with my best friend the other day, and he and I both, you know did the recovery thing. I, I ended up going to rehab by getting a job at a rehab place. Then I tell people, I'm like, the universe knew I would never go as a patient. So instead it got me a job at a rehab place, <laughs> like running the business side. And then my boss would be kind of like, you know what, you have a lot of like, childhood trauma and whatnot. You should start sitting in on some groups and doing some books. And then all of a sudden I'm like there with our clients, like talking about my life, all this type of thing. And I'm kind of like, it was just like going to rehab in the just weirdest way possible. Um, you know, it's like, it's like if nurse ratchet starts, you know, hanging out in the asylum and, uh, and, and it was it, like, and I was told, and it, it's, you know, and I told, you know, you, one of the things you learn in that world is that, um, most, uh, a lot of the people you meet are not going to make it like, keep your black suit handy. Cause there's gonna be a lot of funerals. And the other day. He called me and he was praying. He said, all of my friends are dead. And I said, Griffin, that's the world we come from. Well, like, they, that, the reality that... is a lot of these guys are, and they all OD, of course. It's like, people are going to relapse. People are going to OD. There's going to be funerals, all this type of thing. You know, and yeah, you might have started to get them high the first time, or you were the first one that they parted with, whatever have you. And we just get to live with that guilt, my, my friend. Like, well, that's just, that's on us, and we get to live with that shit. And this is what, you know, unfortunately, this is the situation, sadly enough. There's little to be done for it. Well, there's, I mean, and, and it's a different world as well from when I was doing blow, right? Now, there's always a substantial risk that everything is contaminated with fentanyl which was responsible for, I believe, over 60% of the 93,000 fatal overdoses in 2020. So yeah. it's, a, it's a much different world, drug world, drug using world, than when I was, you know, snorting up, you know, multiple eight balls of blow, right? When it was, right. cut, with, when it was cut with baby laxative or this or that, but not B12, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you really weren't worried about that type of fatal overdose. They still right. happen because people mixed her and things like that. But yes, it, it, it's very sad. We are losing people left and right. 93,000 last year. No, and I, I, and I, I told them, I said, I said, here's the reality of it. They said, there, but for the grace of God, go us. You know, it's like your friends are in the hospital because they overdosed. And I said, that could, like, if, if things had gone ever so differently, that could be you or I. Yeah. Like, literally there, but for the grace of God, Which is go why us. I'm a huge a proponent of safe supply. Uh, uh, there's only uh, one requirement for recovery. That's to be above ground. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a world where we're never going to, I mean, not in my lifetime or probably four generations, we won't be seeing legalization, but we should at least being, we should at least be 
an empathetic society will allow people to test their drugs, right? So they're not going to fatally overdose on, uh, on fentanyl. I mean, fentanyl test strips are illegal in Texas, they're illegal in Pennsylvania, and they're illegal, I'm sure, in a lot of other states. I just don't get that. That's another conversation. But in any event, uh, yeah, so standing in that parking lot, uh, I also thought about something my father said to me, Cameron, standing in that parking lot. My father, who was a, uh, the greatest generation, he was a CB in World War II, uh, was on, at the Battle of Okinawa, then went to Korea. He and his older brother, he was a middle child like me, he and his older brother uh, operated an auto trim shop in Pittsburgh where they reupholstered uh, cars. They reupholstered the seats of cars, put on convertible tops, reupholstered the occasional couch. Very you know, working class kind of guy, didn't go to college. And uh, he used to say to my brothers and I growing up, he'd say, guys, wherever you go, whatever you do, uh, pick up that phone and tell your brother you love him. Tell your brother, make sure he's okay. And uh, this was the relationship my father had with his two brothers as the middle child, even though he worked with his older brother and it was sometimes like a bad marriage, but they loved each other dearly. And I thought about that in that parking lot and uh, I wasn't ready to lose my family. And that was really kind of what turned it around. Why then and not in 2005 when I thought I'd be doing my family a favor by ending my life by suicide? I don't know. Really, how do you ever know when all the right things are going to come together? That's why people, I mean, how many times do people relapse? Uh, how many people do, times do people go to treatment before they find recovery? You know, six or seven, I believe is the average. So you just never know when these things are going to come together and hopefully they do. And that's when it came together for me, standing in that parking lot of that psychiatric hospital for the second time in my life, April 8th, 2007. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, I'm sure while you were standing in the parking lot in rehab, I was probably getting high that weekend because my birthday is in April um, <laughs> and it was 2007. I don't really remember anything about that period of time, but knowing me, I'm sure that's what was going yeah. on. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you want to know how that kind of stuck that would our father said to us uh decades later 1200 miles away from pittsburgh where we grew up my two brothers and i live walking distance to each other and that's not an accident and until my father passed away he lived across the street from me no and i think that that sort of thing is 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 lovely is lovely i was going to wonder what inspired you to finally write this whole story down uh well it started with the writing started with the first book which was shattered image which was about my uh struggle with body image and eating disorders. And that was really a self, that was really a cathartic journey of healing. Uh, I wasn't writing it to help anyone but me. And it was just kind of instinctive. I'd been blogging uh, since 2007. And I wrote my first blog about my struggle with eating disorders, and I believe it was 2008. And it was the first time anyone knew I'd struggled with bulimia. And my motivation was, okay, I have to tell somebody, I feel so alone uh, with this. And this was a year into my recovery. And I hadn't even told my psychiatrist. And so I uh, decided, well, I could put it out on this blog. And it was, you know, long before we had the WordPress and it was on this blogging platform, I forget. And I put it out there and uh, I think I shared it on MySpace or whatever. And the response was, uh, uh, the response was empathetic and supportive. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe this isn't something I need to be as ashamed as I am of. And there are people who get it. 
and there were guys who came forward and uh and so that I started blogging about my, about my mental health journey and then I decided okay maybe there's a book here and I decided I, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised I so I have a I have kind of an informal series of posts called hi my name is Cameron and and I've done two so far one is called hi my name is Cameron and I have gynecomastia because I have natural tits from being overweight all the years and taking asthma medication which screws with adrenal system and all that sort of thing and then the other one the sort of companion is hi my name is Cameron and I'm fat where I talk about my like crazy you know attempts to lose weight and crazy diets that I have been on that would make people cry um and all this type of thing and like just like the difficulty like my body just does not like to lose weight despite best efforts including you know I've made a couple personal trainers cry all this sort of thing and um, I have to say, of all the things that I have written and all the absolutely interesting people um, that I have interviewed, those two posts are the most popular. I don't know why, but people are totally fine like reading about that. And I think because it makes people feel less alone, sure. you know, to be kind of like, oh, wow. Like, you know, and also I think for a lot of people in those situations, that vulnerability is so hard. And when they see someone else be kind of like, yeah, I was in the gym four days a week. Like, yeah, I had the whole list of foods that I didn't eat for years and years and years. You know, it's like there, there was all the things that I didn't keep in my home, the judgment, you know, the all this sort of thing that you go through. Um, I think it I think it gives people a lamp. Sure. It's not really a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a point of light out there being like, yeah, you're not the only one. I'm out here too, and here's my lamp. Absolutely. And Cameron, I have gyno. Mine is from uh, anabolic steroid use. Yeah. So I, I'm right there with you. It, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny because when I, I'm on the first page of Google for that post because there are so many, there are so few people that have been willing to write about it, you know. And, and, and I never have, and I never have. Maybe I feel ashamed, I don't know. That's, a, that's, a, that's something I have to think about because it's something I've never written about, but I do have it. Yeah, no, it's, 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 I mean, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, a, it's, it's not a necessarily uncommon thing. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he actually had surgery because he could, he, despite the fact he works all the time, couldn't fix his chest, had to go have surgery for it. It's not an uncommon thing. Um, and, you know, and I mean, I'm from the South and a bit judgmental. I'm kind of like, it's not an uncommon thing. Have you looked outside lately? Um, you know, sort of thing. And so, yeah, like, and so like when people search for it, I'm like one of the few people that's like, yeah, and it's like, and guess what? I've also dated, had girlfriends, all this type of thing is not the end of your life. Um, sort of thing. And so and I think people, I think, I think people were responding to your vulnerability. My point of my boring you with the story is to say I'm not boring at all. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't talk to people who uh who who have that issue is uh, it's rare. So I'm very interested. Yeah, so the, the long the long story long of, of this is that I think people were when you were writing about that in the early days. Um, I think people were responding to your vulnerability. I think that's why you got that feedback is, you know, people, when you're writing, the job of a writer is to talk about things in terms of other people feel intuitively but can't articulate. And I think you were, you were fulfilling the core mission. Yeah. And it, it's, I may, I may need to, I may need to uh, explore that a little because uh, I still, you know, I, I, I look in the mirror and I still, uh, have issues when I look at my chest, right? I was like, yeah. okay, I need well, to visit CameronJournal.com. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, and so, uh, yeah, it's but, um, 
yeah. But I do. I the point is, I I I, I empathize with you. Cause I also have that issue. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's definitely you know, and and it comes up in all sorts of odd ways. You know, like like you know, um, like button down shirts can be uh, problematic, um, and uh, all this sort of thing. Um, and it, it can be a difficult sort of thing, but then, you know, conversely, it's it's something where, and I, I used to talk about this in the post, it's something where I found that when I felt better about it and I didn't worry about it, that was infectious. Yeah. Like other, it, it changed, like when I changed my energy about it, the way people responded was different. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And uh, for me, the problem is when I'm wearing t-shirts. Because since I don't work out, I, I I run and stuff, but my I don't really have the proportionality anymore, right? Right. So it's it's much more pronounced, uh, you know, underneath my T-shirt, the the bulges. Oh yeah. So uh, that that's more of an issue for me. Oh no no, I completely understand. It's at this stage of it's quite it's quite unavoidable. Yeah, it's just and and sometimes you know things don't fit quite right or whatever have you and and, and that's it's a constant battle <laughs> it's a constant battle but it, it's something where it's just kind of like this is the way it's been since i was 14 years old i'm not going to drop ten thousand dollars to fix it so you know we're just going to move on and we're just going to rock it because it's like this is who i am this is my meat suit deal with it or don't that, that, i can't control that anymore like and, that's a and i can't put my energy on that yeah you know, and then, I mean, I'm a public person, so needless to say, you know, people say things on Twitter and YouTube, you know, I mean, I would, when I used to do the Cameron Cowan show, there was a guy who commented on a YouTube video and he was kind of like, lose 150 pounds before you make another video. And I was kind of like, right, because the only people who are allowed to know things on this planet are the very thin. Yeah. Because well, that's I, how I, that works. I get that kind like, of, as you might, as you've seen, I'm public too, and I get, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, once a week I'll get you're only, you know, people only care about you because you're Mark Cuban's brother and this and that. And you just, I mean, you can't, like you said, you can't control it, right? You no, just, I mean, listen to me, I'm getting amazed at how uncreative people are. Three people on Twitter have said my face looks like Mr. Potato Head. I'm like, you guys aren't even trying to come up with new ones anymore. <laughs> you're the third person who's talked about Mr. Potato Head. Like, it's like, yeah. do you guys all come from the same book? Like, you know, yeah. like, get Trolls. a new playbook. Be creative. Uh, page 105 <laughs> of the Troll Handbook. It's exactly. already been done. It's already exactly. been done. It's like, it's like, oh, I've heard that one already. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, you know, well, people only know who you are because of your brother, I'd say, well, you know, some that for some people that may be right. <laughs> that may be true. Yeah. Like, whatever, right? You just, uh, it just, you learn to let it roll off you. Uh, what people think of me is none of my business. Well, and, and the thing about, and I think the, the difficult thing about it is you certainly can't control it and you very rarely can change it if that person isn't open to seeing you for who you really are and not who they think yeah. you are. And not if who they're they saying it are. in the first place, they're probably not open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So sometimes you just have to move on and, and you just, and if, if you, if you have a feeling about it, because, and sometimes I will admit some of this, even I've been doing this, you know, for eight years now some of it still bothers me that's my cause to go talk to a friend and i have i'm i'm so blessed to have friends all over the world um to go talk to a friend about it to go um you know to you know go do something distracting or go do something else and all this type of thing and not not let it pile up 
No, I get it. I get it. So, what well, what what does life today look like? Like it's been well, all this time. Life and recovery. Life I, and all this type yeah, of thing. I, How are things now? Good. I got sober. For people who are going to want to know, I got sober in twelve step. I didn't go to I didn't go to rehab, residential treatment. Uh, so uh, I still do twelve step meetings. I'm still on therapy, and I and I'm and I'm always working on being the best Brian I can be, and and uh, trying to. Uh, change my little part of the world with acts of kindness and I'm, I'm a recovery advocate and I uh, help people anyone reach people reach out to me all the time when they're when they're struggling whether it's body image eating disorder uh, I'm fairly well known in the legal profession because of my book the addicted lawyer and so I do a lot of public speaking not so much in during COVID because you know that's really shut down the whole public speaking thing but sometimes virtual and I just finished my and I'm excited about my new book my novel and uh, I, I, I talk to my brothers, I see my brothers, and uh, I live a very quiet, uh, kind of, I won't say isolated, but very reserved life. Uh, who, I lived the life of the real Brian Cuban, who was never the life of the party, didn't need to be. And, uh, and my wife is kind of the same way. So we live a very, with, we live a very quiet life with our, with our two cats. And uh, and just enjoy it a day at a time. It's funny, I'm 60 now, and uh, you realize uh, less time in front than behind, right? And you, you kind of, your priorities kind of change and your view on life changes and your view on friendship changes and what really is friendship. And uh, I've, I've gotten comfortable with uh, my direction, something that, I, that avoided me for decades. Or I avoided. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I um, that's a, a place of Zen that I aspire to. Not there yet, um, but I, I, I'm 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 Zen aspirational. <laughs> no, I, I get it, and it's uh, I mean, I'm like anyone else. I, I I mean, do I go through times when I wonder, okay, what's the point? And I I still struggle with depression, and I take antidepressants. But I think everything overall, right, I'm living a life that is far more uh, zen, far more productive, so more, far more self-fulfilling than before recovery. Uh, I've done a lot of things in uh, sobriety and in recovery that I never would have dreamed of uh, April 7th, 2007. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like the reverse. I feel like my life has gotten... Much less interesting. I, I had a friend in, in, in Vegas. She owns a wonderful candle brand. Um, and, uh, and we were talking about how, you know, in, you know, sober life and owning businesses and running them and trying to grow our brands and all this type of thing, how, you know, life is much less interesting and adventurous than it used to be. You know, all the good well, stories I, I are guess from the old days. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you define that, right? If, uh, yeah, I mean, I traveled a lot of different places and did cocaine a lot of different places. I don't do that now. Uh, traveling is interesting, right? Uh, do it, but uh, I, I, I define interesting differently. And uh, I don't view my life on a, uh, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't view my life as, well, okay, Am I doing interesting things? I'm just doing the things that I think that that make me happy and uh, that support my family and uh, that empower the people around me and try to help. And you know, and then if that's it, if other people view that as interesting, great. 
but uh, I just view it as, like I said, trying to trying to change my little part of the world with acts of kindness every day. Yeah, no, I I I, de I definitely have that uh, have that thing I tell you know people's you know there's <laughs> I'm the poor fellow that when <laughs> excuse me someone is you know in trouble or whatever have you i'm the poor you know silly fellow that stops and investigates and all this type of thing um but one of the advantages of being a six foot tall big brown dude is i scare people so i can get away with it um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like i intimidate people so i can walk into dangerous situations and people yeah. are like oh whoa back off and it's kind of like yeah. which is fine um it's like, but it, it, it lets me help people so you know the body that i always thought was awful and terrible and all this type of thing turned out to be a tremendous asset in the right situation despite what people on twitter might think um <laughs> so it yeah it's a very it's a very in, kind of interesting and interesting whatnot thing so uh, are you working on another book is it one and done what's your plan no well uh right now i'm just focused on getting this uh you know, on the release of the Ambulance Chaser, which is December 7, 2007. But uh, I would think there'll be another one. I'm thinking of writing a follow-up to The Addicted Lawyer. Uh, so uh, I'm thinking of uh, another project is that uh, a re-release of Shattered Image, uh, which was published, uh, oh, man, going on uh, at least uh, 10 years ago now, about 10 years ago. So I have different books in mind, but for right now, I just want to get this uh, novel out and into the public. Yeah, how's your how's your how's your writing process? Are you a morning person, an evening person? Uh, I've always been a person that you just unless there's a deadline, I just write when I feel like writing. That's why these books took so long. <laughs> that's, why, <laughs> that's why it took yeah. me two years to write the ambulance chaser because I uh, I never really got on a you know write every day schedule like Stephen King recommends. But uh, uh, you know I I I. I I've never written, my best writing has never been when I felt compelled to write. It's always been when I have this, just in this creative mindset, okay, here's this idea and I start scribbling and then I revise the scribble and oh, I have something here. And I scribble a little more. That's kind of my process. No, yeah, are you a, are you a hardcore outlining person or a pantser? Uh, I started out as a pantser and realized that I'd write better as an outliner. Yeah, I, I'm here's this for me, like being autistic. It's like I have to have an outline. I have to have a roadmap. Like I have to have that level of structure. ADHD sometimes is kind of like, let's just write whatever. So sometimes I'll write a scene and then figure out where it goes in the outline. Like, you know, yeah, kind of the, serve both sides of my brain. The ambulance chaser did not go well while I was writing the seat, uh, while I was doing seat of my pants writing. Uh, yeah. It didn't really uh, move forward in a positive way until I started outlining. And I, uh, what did I use? Scrivener uh, to, to outline it. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I used Scrivener for about a year. <clears throat> then <clears throat> I, I had Evernote for business stuff and Scrivener for creative writing. And I found this app called Ulysses that did functions of both. So I left both of those behind and moved to Ulysses, but Scrivener is an amazing tool. And I used to, I used to kind of um, shit on writing tools. <clears throat> I was always like, you don't need fancy writing tools. You don't need programs, all this type of thing, get busy writing. Then I used Scrivener for the first time and I was kind of like, well, cancel all that. Scrivener's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I, I've experimented with them all. Grammarly, Hemingway, uh, Autocrit. I mean, I, I've, 
I've looked at every different tool there is for for fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Brian, it's been a delight to have you on the Cameron Journal podcast. Why don't you let us know um, where they can get the book on December 17th and where they can find you online? Yeah, you can. The, the, ambulance, the ambulance Chaser is a, actually available for pre-order right now on Amazon. You can just uh, put that name in or just put Brian Cuban and all my books will come up. That's Brian with an I. Uh, you can find, and the book is being released December 7th. Uh, you can find me at briancuban.com, Brian with an I. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.